0: good evening everyone thank you to everyone online and here in person at the national civil rights museum here in memphis tennessee for joining us i am dr russ wigginton president of the national civil rights museum which is located at the lorraine motel here in memphis tennessee and is the historic site where dr martin luther king was assassinated our mission is to honor and preserve the legacy of Dr. King and to educate all on the American Civil Rights Movement. As such, we are always in conversation about how we can leverage the power of place to inspire community action towards repair. We are honored to partner with Zocalo Public Square to present tonight's program. I'll now turn it over to Moira Shuri, Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wigington. Hello, everyone. I'm Moira Shuri, Executive Director of Zocalo Public Square and Arizona State University Media Enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org on podcast platforms and YouTube. So please subscribe to our latest programs. We were founded in 2003 and we are now celebrating our 20th year. Zocalo is based in Los Angeles and we are very excited to be here in Memphis for tonight's program. It's an honor to have the National Civil Rights Museum as our host and co-presenter. Tonight, we present the third program in our two-year event and editorial series, How Should Societies Remember Their Sins? This is supported by the Mellon Foundation. Through October of this year, four public conversations and an array of original work published on our website will address this question exploring how societies around the world collectively remember their transgressions and make attempts at repair, and how we might imagine new paths forward. To continue this, this conversation and this series by asking the question tonight, why isn't remembering enough to repair? I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, William Stirkey. William is a historian at the University of Pennsylvania who specializes in the history of race in the American South. He is the author of Hattiesburg: An American City in Black and White, winner of the 2020 Socolo Book Prize. He is our guide not only for this conversation but for the other programs in our series as well. Over to you, William.
2: You come up. Good evening. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is William Sturkey. I'm an author and historian and associate professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it's an honor to be hosting this conversation with Zokolo at the National Civil Rights Museum. And I'm pleased to introduce our guest for the evening. Starting with my immediate left, we have Dr. Andre E. Johnson, who is a professor of communication at the University of Memphis. He is also a visiting scholar at Memphis Theological Seminary and an Andrew Mellon Just Transformation satellite partner with the Center for Black Digital Research at Penn State University. Johnson's research examines the intersection of rhetoric, race, and religion, and he teaches courses in African American public address, religious communication, race and religion, (laughs) and social movements. His forthcoming book, with Amanda Nell Edgar, the summer of 2020, George Floyd and the Resurgence of Black Lives Matter, will be published next spring. Um, to his left is Kin Lum. Excuse me. To, to Dr. Johnson's left is Kin Lum, an artist with an extensive international exhibition record that includes Documenta, the Venice Biennale, Uh, Shanghai Biennale and the Whitney Biennial. Lum is the co-founder and senior curatorial advisor to Monument Lab, a public art and history think tank. He is a prolific writer with numerous essays and reviews in in academic and non-academic publications. Lum has realized numerous permanent public art commissions and has a curatorial record that includes co-curating Shanghai Modern, Sharjah Biennale, Sharjah, United Arab Emir- Emirates, and Monument Lab, Creative Speculations for Philadelphia. A longtime professor, he is the Chair of Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania's Weizmann School of Design in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, to Professor Lum's left is Robin Rue Simmons, the founder and executive director of First Repair, a not-for-profit organization that informs local reparations nationally. Ms. Simmons is the former Fifth Ward Alderwoman for the city of Evanston, Illinois, where she led, in collaboration with others, the passage of the nation's first municipally-funded reparations legislation for black residents. <laughs> Currently, she chairs the city of Evanston's reparations committee. She has received numerous work awards for her public service work, and was most recently named a 2023 fellow in the University of Chicago Institute of Politics Pritzer Fellows Program. Thank you all so much for joining us. So before we get started, I think it's important to acknowledge that we are at a site of memory. Um, Where we sit now, especially for those of us um, online in the audience, we sit not very far away, just steps away from where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and murdered in April of 1968. And I think this challenge are, challenges us with this panel because obviously Martin Luther King Jr.'s death was major national news, and since then, his birth date has become a national holiday, and we've seen a lot of progress in this country, but yet we remain mired in so many different types of racial struggles, and there are so many open wounds that still affect our society. So we're here to talk about this, right? Why isn't remembering enough to repair? We remember Martin Luther King Jr. and and others. Why isn't remembering enough to repair? We hope to have an open and generative, thought-provoking conversation that could be applicable to other sites of memory and other contested spaces across the United States. Um, To all of you in the audience, I would encourage you, thank you all so much for being here, first of all, um, and engaging in this important topic. I would also ask you, or invite you, to begin thinking about different examples of past wrongs in this country, maybe things that you haven't heard about in the news, and what repair in this country might look like. Um, It's not just about the past, but it's really about the future, and that's what we're here to discuss. How can we curate a usable past to ensure a better future for the generations that follow us? Um, As the moderator, I will lead with some questions for our esteemed panelists, and then we'll dive into some questions from the audience. For those of us who are watching online, you can submit questions in the live chat on YouTube. Okay? So with that, let's go ahead and get started. I just want to start off by asking everyone on the panel, and this is a big, broad question. I get that. But I want to um, sort of set our feet on the ground by asking us to think about memory and remembering itself. Um, Especially at a moment when contest over American memory, what happened in this country, especially with race, is all over the news. We get all sorts of laws. Um, there's headlines about what you can and cannot teach anymore. There's people that are very upset when we talk about memory. Generally speaking, how would you assess the state of remembrance or memory um, in terms of our national dialogue right now?
3: I think memory is um, highly fractured right now, and and that there's no consensus in terms of in terms of uh, even what, how history unfolded, and how history should even be written about, and so on. Uh, I think that's a good thing in a way because uh, history has been, you know, history is written by those with power over the subjugated, and and now the subjugated are saying, you know, we have lived experience in terms of that history that you write about, and uh, that is unacknowledged for too long. So we're in this kind of moment where there's a transition going on. It's still highly contested, but I think it's a very fraught moment, and I think that's as painful as that is. I think that's a good thing. Mm.
4: So I um, completely agree, but I would like to add that I think we are becoming more aware and remembering and acknowledging, and that is what is... Um, allowing the momentum that we're seeing in the reparations movement right now because of the um, great journalism and arts where we are um, being educated on our history. So I believe that the work that we're doing on reparations really is an action plan to um, remembrance and memory and um, I'm encouraged. Although we have so much to be discouraged about what we see happening, um, in school systems and um, in the legislature um, I do believe it is evidence that we are pushing the needle and we are making progress and so I will remain encouraged and hopeful
5: yeah and I just well I want to start off by just thanking all of you for coming out tonight and and uh, Zocalo and the Civil Rights um, Museum for hosting us here tonight uh, and I'm just gonna be a good rhetorician and come right in the middle <laughs> and, 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 and agree with uh, both of my co-panelists here, I do believe that there is momentum, there's definitely momentum. But I'm also with you as, you know, it's fractured, and that's the problem, because I do think and this is just me, I really think that folk actually know what they're doing. They understand the history, they understand the strategies behind that. And they're just looking, a lot of them are looking at what their foreparents did and duplicating it. And so if I understand the history, it is not now me misremembering or me not knowing. It is me now actually actively trying to resist the history in order for us to talk about what we wanna talk about. How do we move from remembering to repair? And if we cannot um, come to grips with the history, whatever it is, if we cannot come to grips with it, or if we actively uh, refuse to accept it and live in it, it's gonna be very hard to move forward in any direction. We will always be right here just spinning our wheels like we are in some deep mud, so um, I think that people are looking at the reparation movement and they're sitting home right now trying to figure out how can I hinder that? But instead of accepting it as legitimate, as something wholly acceptable and good and that we can build on, people are trying to push back against that. And I think that's what's going on right now. and I, I guess I was—I I get an opportunity to say a little bit more about this—that we in here must begin to govern ourselves to that reality. And I still think that we are not there yet.
2: Mm.
3: Can I just add something to sure. that? I, I largely agree. I guess mm. where I would put some nuance is I think of um, you know or- Orwell's <laughs> saying yeah. about uh, you know the the past—who um, controls the past controls. The- the, um, the future, and who controls the present controls the past. That's just a, a complicated Orwellian way of saying that you know, the present is what we, we can determine both the past and, and the future. Mm-hmm. And the only people who don't understand, or let's say the people who do understand in terms of the ones you're referring to as being pushing back are the p- people in power. They understand the kind of systemic racism that's built into the system, mm-hmm. because they want to maintain that privilege, and then the only the other people that also understand that are the people who feel that power over them, mm-hmm. right? But there is a great center of mass of people who are—they—it's like the system itself is produces a kind of opacity in terms of people's consciousness that they are actually part of this. Right. system, right? And they are kind of in the middle, right? And I think that middle group, and I don't mean middle, like somehow they're compromised or anything like that, but that group is having a bit of an awakening. So it's a bit of an inc- encouraging, right? But it's certainly insufficient.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm going to ask a, a tricky follow-up about the United States of America. So the the title of this entire Zocalo series is how should societies remember their sins? But we also live in a country where some of the people who committed sins are actually the most revered people in the country. For many of us, we would consider it a sin to, to kill, to take a human life, remove all possibility from that human life, and use it to enhance our own wealth. But at the same time, we live in a country where we also celebrate those same sinners, and I don't think that's necessarily going to change. So if we can't even come to terms with what a sin truly is, then how can we deal with who is owed repair or what repair might look like?
4: I'll jump in and say that um, yes to it being a sin, but it's also a crime what was done to black folks in America, Africans that were kidnapped and brought here and enslaved. And so if we look at that and how do we repair a crime, we don't have as much of an issue on how do we repair and reconcile that and bring restitution. Yes, to that. So it is my opinion that we have a great opportunity to build on looking at it as crimes against humanity because we don't know what the moral standard is um, for our legislatures and leaders and so on, but we do know that it was a criminal act to enslave and kidnap and rape and steal uh, labor and opportunity, the plunder Um, not just the enslavement area, but other eras of terror um, in the black community. So there is an opportunity to look at it from that perspective.
5: And I would fundamentally agree, as a minister uh, and a pastor, I would fundamentally agree that that is definitely a crime. But here's here's the rub, and this is what uh, the opponents would say, that slavery was legal. The capture... Segregation was legal. The capture of African word, le- that's, that's legal. And as long as it was legal, then it's not a crime. Therefore, in the thinking and their theology, it is not a sin. So how do we begin to have the conversation, since you brought up sins, that that is profoundly a sin? Racism itself has just only been a sin theologically for like the last 60 years. Hmm. Think about that for a moment, that, that the sin of racism has only been a sin for 60 about 60 years. James Cohn and his work, Albert Clegg <laughs> and his work uh, will, uh, will help us understand that. But if we cannot even get to the point where, going back to your question about um, what is a sin, or even we can acknowledge it that it was a crime, then how do we begin to have the conversation? And, I, and, and again, I truly believe that the people in power and, and, and certain other people that are not in power honestly believe in their heart of hearts that that was Sinful and bad, but they just don't want to acknowledge it and they want to live as if it never happened And as long as you can keep on doing that and keep on um, passing uh, uh, I mean just going over it over and over again It's gonna be frustrating trying to move forward. I'm going back to that
2: Ken did you want
5: to?
3: Many of America's most revered and storied corporations and companies. I mean the wealth started from First of all, I mean I'm in Memphis, so I I I think back to uh, you know the eradication of Chickasaw from this region, right, and then slave labor, then indentured labor, which is a kind of a contractual form of slavery, right? It was all but slavery except in legal terms all of a sudden, right? So many of the most and they include even like all the Boston Brahmin families right, tough university medical school, yeah. all the University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> where, where I work, right? They, they would not be where they are were it not for the exploitation of slaves and other peoples, right? So I, I don't know how to answer that question, right? I think there has to be, there's some reckoning, but I mean, I know recently in England, um, the, fa- the descendants of William Gladstone with the Victorian era mm-hmm. prime minister, they're all incredibly wealthy because William Gladstone owned the largest sugar plantations in Central and South America with slave labor. And they all apologized, and they all acknowledged their privilege. They, we've, we've had a wonderful life because of this and we are so sorry. And, we, and so they donated 100,000 pounds. You know, it's like hundred thousand dollars. You know. So I don't think that's enough. I think there has to be a wholesale systemic kind of reckoning from the uh, central government, which is in DC. Right.
5: Right. No, it's total. Can yeah.
2: okay, I'm gonna ask you a follow up. So that suggests that in some ways we're all beneficiaries of these sins. And so how does that then change the conversation as opposed to saying that a certain group of people benefited you know, or committed the sins or perpetuated the sins and others did not?
3: I think, I think there's never a clean solution, but I do think, uh, first of all, not everyone benefited equally. Sure. Some benefited much more than others. Some continue to benefit, right? Some continue to have not, you know, more modern, let's say, but systemically racist uh, procedures still built into their culture, and it continues, right? So I think nowadays I would say many um, m- many companies are trying to reconcile with that, but, they, but it, se- it seems almost as though they don't have the tools, the language tools or whatever tools, the critical tools. Sure. right? And I think one way to, of addressing that is maybe to provide people with the critical tools to be able to think independently, to have some skepticism in terms of what they've been taught and what they've been uh, led to believe. Okay. That would be a starting point. I just
4: want to add, um, so to the point that um, it's debatable on if it were a crime and therefore it's not a sin because it – so I have to really shout out the interfaith community for being the lead partner in um, advancing reparations. Yes, to that. My values are rooted in the AME Church. And through our interfaith community, between the Christians, Catholic – our um, jewish brothers and sisters buddhists and so on muslim there's not one text that isn't rooted in repair restitution redemption forgiveness and so on Um, so for it not to be um, considered a sin for it not to be acknowledged as such um, is clearly uh, the manipulation of people in power you know (laughs) looking to keep black people oppressed and maintain their privilege and so on but i do want to at least um, take away that it has been the interfaith community um, in our city, uh, Beth its synagogue Second Baptist Church, many others that have been the key leading force mm. in educating sure. the community on why reparations as well as tangibly supporting it just within a several month period raising an additional million dollars to be a companion to what's happening at a government level in Evanston.
2: Let me move us forward by asking about who we, who who needs repair? Who deserves more opportunities in in the wake of the sins that were committed in our society? And so, oftentimes, if you bring up a term like reparations or anything like that, um, people who resist that will say, "Well, you know, my ancestors faced disadvantages too, be it some sort of ethnic group or whatever." And if we think really broadly, I mean, any of our mothers or grandmothers, you can make the exact same argument that virtually every single person in this country had an ancestor who faced some sort of disadvantage, and so. How do we measure that exactly? How do we identify and target the groups that where, where repair is really needed? E- even before we get into the details of what that repair looks like, how do we make sure we hone in on the most appropriate populations?
4: Well, measuring it is one thing, but who is uh, due reparations? Only when we get to the discussion of Black America do we have to talk about, well, also this group is Mm. due reparations and that group (laughs) is due reparations and so on. (laughs) Reparations is not exclusive to any community. We have seen the Japanese community receive reparations for internment. We have seen the Jewish community received reparations for Holocaust. We have seen 9/11 survivors and their families receive reparations yeah. for for that terrorism. But when we get to discussing repair and justice and liberation of Black people, we have to get into who else is due? Yeah, who else is due? And so in the reparations conversation in the black community, everybody black in the United States that was harmed is due reparations. And so there is a very active conversation around lineage and if you were enslaved in America, that is complicated, right? Mm Uh, but if you were harmed in America by this government, then you are due reparations. And we're seeing activity and momentum at a local level. And we do hope that it is a local to national movement and that ultimately we will see a federal bill for reparations. That's
6: right.
5: And I would just add this. Whoever the law said could not do, that's who should get it.
2: Okay.
5: I mean, that, I mean, because all of that was total. It was just total. And people who would be considered African-American, Negro, colored, whatever you wanna say, doing the time, they should get it. I mean, that's it because this was a legal, government ran this, did this, provided for certain people, did not provide mm-hmm. for others. And that's the point. When we bought it all, what is it in the law that said that I, somebody that looked like me could not do or move or go here or do that, that's who should get it. Because that is how wealth in this country gets passed down. If I could not, the 1866 massacre was held, was right here in Memphis, Tennessee burned down every black establishment, every house, every church, every school, every business, right here in Southampton, not too far from here. And those folk had to start all over again, and many of their descendants did not have anything passed down to them. And it kept going in perpetuity until we get to today. That group of people should have reparations, and all people who good, did not get due uh, process of the law should get reparations because it was baked in the law.
3: Well, I support reparations, but I think it, I prefer to speak about repair as a kind of maybe antecedent step, right? And I think you asked a question about those quantitative, how do you? Measure this. I think there's lots of just basic statistics that tell you, you know, who was not able to uh, bestow assets to the next generation, right? I mean, that's the greatest, one of the greatest sins in America today—the kind of social immobility, right? And it's obscured by the myth that there's immense social mobility when there's not. There's social mobility in terms of people losing jobs and they have to move somewhere. There's a kind of physical geographical mobility, but there's no social mobility in terms of people actually moving to a better station in life, hmm. right? That's, that, so that's a gigantic myth that needs to be demystified, actually, mm-hmm. right? So w- which areas I've have have seen di- persistent disinvestment going back centuries, right? Uh, what about... Uh, like I was talking to someone earlier about the St. Louis Arch. Who was actually evicted when they built when they up the arch? Who were actually evict- evicted when they ex- decided to expand Central Park? Who were evicted when they decided to extend the Moses Expressway? Or any of these, the innumerable um, urban renewal projects. It was always the poor people, black people, brown-skinned people. Yes. Always, right? So statistically, all of that is available uh, as quantitative metrics in abundance.
2: So let me ask you this. What if we can hope and dream for just a second? Um, I'm not going to ask you to fix everything, but if you had your druthers 10, 15, 20 years from now, um, what are the most important elements of repair in our society? What would that actually look like?
4: Well, I I do this work full-time every day, Mm -hmm. and I have the great privilege to go into communities across the nation and even internationally to ask that question so that black communities can begin to prescribe what repair looks like to them, being that the black community should really lead in, in that thinking about Um, reparations and I'll tell you what happens every community lands on a long comprehensive list of repair there's a lot of talk about cash benefit how do we figure out the amount of the check and so on but if you actually get into the neighborhoods black folks want access to education health care housing long list cash yes as well Um, and you know many of us in the movement really look at the international law standard for reparations which includes five components cessation and guarantee of non-repetition. And so we are looking for policy reform. We are looking for anti-black laws to be addressed, reform, changed. Even the anti-blackness that's baked into our current policy today that looks like zoning and other things like that, We're looking for that to be addressed. Restitution and compensation are what we most often hear about, a cash benefit, a check, some sort of tangible redress. But satisfaction, that's going to be the acknowledgement, the apology, monuments, education, and so on. We're hearing that black communities want that. And then rehabilitation. Um, How do you uh, repair our health? The trauma that we experience every day is just being black in America the trauma that we have inherited through transgenerational epigenetics and so on. And so if I had it my way, uh, black folks could really prescribe what it would take to repair them. Some look to have – want to repatriate, whether it's to have access to West Africa or to be able to go to West Africa to have a life there. That is also a movement as well. Now, for me, reparations would uh, end in joy. Whatever joy is, rest – uh, peace, empowerment, legacy, and so on. And it would be different. In my case, it would be rooted around land and access to housing and education at, for me personally. But it is for black residents to really think about what it should be. And then it's for our elected officials to put together reparative programs. So I'm, I'm hearing that reparations is too provocative. Maybe we should call it repair or reparative justice. Hmm. Um, but it is... Um, for black communities to be informing their legislators and their legislators to take action in tangible ways.
2: So what I'm hearing you say is that there's a psychological benefit also. I mean, have you seen that in your local community? Absolutely. And so in
4: 2019, we passed a funded reparations initiative. And I'm really proud of Evanston because we funded it with an initial $10 million. We've added an additional $10 million. We're looking for more. Um, And so what we've heard from our residents just after passing it, first of all, they thought it would never happen. Right. And then when it passed, the excitement and gratitude that just we were acknowledged. Yeah and that we're working on a plan. The satisfaction that they had and how it repaired their hope in our city, it repaired their outlook on the life circumstances of future generations, but then to actually be able to give a resident a check for $25,000 along with an apology and acknowledgement and a commitment to continue doing this work. What we hear from them I cannot get into right now because I still can't get through it without crying. I'll tell you how emotional it is to hear from a elder black resident because that's who's receiving benefits first on how they are gonna be transitioning out of this life, hopeful for what's gonna happen and how it is uplifting them. They're feeling a sense of place and ownership and community and so on. I get the great honor on this Friday to acknowledge another about 50 residents who have received reparations um, with a dinner and it has been incredible. So, even taking that first step, if you can't figure out how to fund it yet, take the first step in acknowledging uh, the harm and committing to tangible repair. It's a complicated process, but the step makes all the difference in repairing your community.
3: Mm. That's right. Mm. Well, um, we live in a capitalist society, but America has a particular American capitalism has a particular character. And that character is to render everything, I'm, I'm talking about everything, mm-hmm. transactional. Everything is transactional. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking when, before coming here, what would, what would be the anathema or the opposite, let's say, the antipode of um, American transactional capitalists? It would be the gift economy, which was the basis for many economies around the world, mm-hmm. right? And they were often matriarchal as well, right? But that is actually anathema to the system. It's, a, it's seen as a threat to, to the system because there's too much privilege built in to the few here, and they'll do anything to stop that, right? When, when Robin speaks about you know, local groups and so on, that's, that's like gifting, right? And I think repair, reparations, is should be seen in a positive light as opposed to a transactional light that gift, that they are you, you are becoming a part of a community of showing concern for others and, and seeing that you are gifting because you've been gifted by others who are enslaved right mm. so and that's, that's a lot of work yeah. right? but I don't see how you can avoid that
5: Andre no I was going to. Wonderful answer because I was just going to talk about safe and shalom communities peace wholeness wellness um, um, Able to to get medical attention able to feel safe and secure in your homes Um, Some of the stuff that we've been talking about um, right here in Memphis when we talk about reimagining public safety and how Certain people um, just want to be able to go to sleep peacefully. I mean, that's what it would look like. And then implementing not some of the same stuff that we always try, always over and over, and doubling and tripling down on that. Let's try some new stuff. Let's try some new stuff um, to get to that point. So I I am in total agreement with um, Robin here.
2: I want to tie together a few different things. You know, Ken talks about this being transactional and I think a lot of people think of reparations as being sort of a zero-sum game. They ask, "Where does the money come from?" But right. is there a way if we if we can just somehow put aside the money for a second? Is there a way that reparations for for African Americans, for Native Americans, right. whoever, is there a way that that could help bring us all together? Could that, be, uh, could that create a positive psychological feeling for all Americans? And how might that be possible? Well,
3: th- but that's what I was alluding to by the gift economy. Right. If people actually psychologically thought, well, actually, this is good for society. But the yeah. way society, American society in particular, has hypertrophized that idea of like everything is transactional. People can't even see beyond this. The, the, the you know the limits of that. They just think that's natural, but it's actually highly unnatural. It's unnatural to be highly competitive to the point of death of wanting to kill your competitor. That is not a natural thing. At least not the way I was brought up, <laughs> right? And uh, and I think it's a such an extreme case uh, a, a example in, in terms of the many different forms of a, a capitalist economy around the world. So, but I do want to go back to your earlier question, uh, William, and say, I think one of the what I foresee is a, a real instrumental key to, the, to having some sort of uh, direction towards solution is a wholesale reconfiguration and reinvigoration of public schools. Public education. People are not educated properly. People are not given critical tools. People are not taught to be empathetic. People are not taught that there are Many, many histories are worthy to be told and, um, and so people go through school and, and public school is, is kind of stratified to charter schools and pr- private schools and so on. I think that is like a big, big key because we're talking about a kind of generational process and I think it starts with proper education that's not, not, not transactional. I live in an area which is middle class and our schools are quite good because it's a middle class area, but there are schools in Philadelphia just next to where I live because they, they, it's a very poor area. And I, I, I personally, I give money to that, to that school district, but why, why shouldn't there be a larger super school district that says these schools need, need help and we should transfer some money to those schools? Well, yeah. because that's anathema to the, to the American system because that would be seen as redistribution even though the payoff for that would be incredible.
2: One of the things that I think is coming up is sort of this national versus local. So it's maybe a bit easier for institutions or organizations or even local governments to begin reparative movements. Um, Smaller group of people, they might be like-minded, there might be a charismatic leader, whatever that might be. Um, What are sort of the pros and cons of local versus national efforts at repair? And is a national effort at repair really possible, you think?
4: Sure. Um, so the local um, approach to repair, um, in the case of calling the question 2019, it seemed more immediately attainable. And I wanted to make the most of my time as in, in office in Evanston. Um, and I think that we all, if we all just mind our business and do our work within the institutions and cities and things that we lead, then we hold ourselves accountable first. And so, as I was becoming more aware of the national reparations conversation, I would say I was first inspired by Coates' article, "The Case." Um, I thought, well, what am I doing in my own city? So I'm upset at my Congress that they haven't passed. A reparations initiative, but we have anti-black history right here in Evanston, and how can we address that? And how can the next city address it? And how can the institutions in town address their anti-blackness, Northwestern University, our school system, our medical systems, and so on? And so I think that the, I know that the hyper-local approach is more attainable it makes more sense to more people because when you get into the debate about how do you address slavery because it was so far away and that sort of thing, it's more attainable and we can implement. And I do believe at a national level, it will take more local initiatives, more institutions yeah. saying yes to reparations. It's gonna take more heart and mind work for us to get there. I believe we're a long way away um, in this in this government, but A local to national approach is how most transformative federal policy happens. School desegregation, you look at ban the box, marriage equality, cannabis now, a national discussion where it's been at a state level. And I believe that's how we will get to uh, national repair. Going to be far more complicated, but we could get closer to full repair at a national level because the This country has a capacity where our localities are limited in what we could do. $25,000, if that were it, yes, it would feel transactional. But it is a first step, one that is given with an acknowledgement that it is a first step and we're looking to do more. That more should be a state, a county, and a federal initiative for reparations.
3: I think you need to have a good, forward-thinking, progressive government on the federal level, first of all, right? Yeah, right? And let's just say that happens. One of the <laughs> things, no, but let's just say that happens, right? <laughs> right? And let's just say that the local level, local is, po- is political and, mm-hmm. I, and I believe there's lots percolating at the local level. One of the things I learned having this amazing tour of the museum today, and you know, a lot of the facts I knew, but a lot of the, th- one thing I, I kind of realized, it was almost like an epiphany was just how powerful state rights were, right? I mean, it was just the degree of entrenchments of the state level, not the local level, right? The local level, people were dying, right? But the federal level, they had good hearts, it seemed, right? Kennedy and so on. But they were, everything was incremental. Everything they tried to do was being pushed back, constantly or even ignored at the state level. Right, so mm-hmm. I think um, that's another challenge on that level. And that's built into the way w- elections are organized with electoral college and, and so on. That keeps them very strong, right? With lo- state, you know, gerrymandering states and um, with their own Supreme Courts uh, or totally ideologically skewed. Mm-hmm. So th- I just want to bring that f- factor into the complication between local and. Yeah, national. I think with the national, we have a bigger
5: platform. You can talk about it in those type of terms, uh, ideological terms. You know, trying to get people fired up to do the work on the local level. But I am so glad you brought up where both of you actually did. You brought up about politics, and this is where the really the rubber meets the road. We can yell, shout, and scream, and 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 protest, and do all of that. But if you don't have partners in the seats that's actually going to sign legislation in order for it to get done, it's just gonna just keep being the same way over and over again. So one of the things that you're absolutely right, um, and uh, can I just shout out the big payback? Because I (laughs) I know you probably won't, but uh, that, that documentary about the movement, your movement is is awesome, and it shows where committed people can do the things that they set out to do if they stay focused and if they stay committed. The question is, do we have the commitment at the political level here in the city of Memphis, here in the state of Tennessee, in the county of Shelby, do we have the commitment level of the people to actually make that a concern the next time you go to the ballot box. And here it is, it's gonna always fall back on the people. In a democracy, it's gonna fall back on the people. So, hashtag uh, how you gonna vote, hashtag blame the voters, whatever you wanna say, That's, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because, and then, and then, you got to have people that's gonna keep their word that once they get in, they're going to actually try to do that. And that's been a problem here in this city. that has been a problem in this state that when people get elected, they kind of forget. Oh, I did say that. No. <laughs> and, 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 and so we are still spinning our wheels over and over and over again. Now. There's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on with the rhetoric and and the arguments and all the meaning, but where the rubber really meets the road is when all of us decide that this is something that we are going to do and that we need people who are gonna work with us on the other side of this, that's when it can, uh, can start and begin to happen and we can start slowly but building momentum. And you're absolutely right, it always starts from uh, um, um, the streets to the suites, from the bottom to the top, it always rise up. People in power just do not say, you know what, you're right, I'm just going to give, I'm just going to turn over the power. It starts in, uh, at the bottom and it moves on up to the top.
2: I want to ask Andre a very quick follow-up and then we're going to jump to the Q&A to, um, from the audience. So if for the folks in person, if you're interested in asking a question, um, please keep thinking of those questions and, and come line up over here. Um, But the follow-up that I want to ask, you're a professor of rhetoric, you studied the Civil Rights Movement. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is probably the most patriotic speech ever delivered in this country. And one of the things that he did was first, before making the ask, he made white people feel good about their country. He invoked the Declaration of Independence, he invoked all the rhetoric, all the most profound language of the promise of America, and then he makes the ask, then he shares the dream. So, what would a rhetorical approach look like now? to pursue repair that would that would maybe wow. sort of get more people on board and not people make people sort of shrink away like oh I have to give something up or I'm gonna feel bad about that
5: allow me to push back just a little after King makes to speak August 28 1963 was everybody on board no. Yeah. <laughs> two weeks later was it like two weeks, the, the bombing happened, and the same king who said, I have a dream, also said that America was number one purveyor of violence in the world. And the same king, the last sermon he was gonna preach was why America might go to hell. So, how do you, the, 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 good question about the rhetorical, uh, uh, the rhetorical strategy or how to get people involved. And, and, and yes, you can do that. You can um, make people feel good. You can, you can meet people halfway. You can do all those things that we kind of teach in speech class. You know, how to persuade the unpersuadable audience. But I will come with this. There are some audiences that you will never ever be able to persuade. And when we understand that, actually we get free We are free now to work with the people that we need to work with in order to get things done and build from there. The problem has been, and I'm so glad I got this quote, the problem has been for, for, at least for me, is that we spend an hour extraordinary amount of time trying to convince folk who will never ever be convinced of anything that we have to say. Instead of trying to go to the people who are at least open-minded or who are already there and needing to know somebody else felt like me. Like, oh, you mean to tell, I, I just didn't have the language for it, but you, that sounds good, what you just said, and now we can build the movement there. I, I, have, I have moved beyond trying to figure out how to find the available means of persuasion to the unpersuadable audience. I am now trying to find the uh, 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 available means of working together and bearing witness in order to get things done in community with folk who are working toward that end. And yes, you're gonna have issues, you're gonna have problems, you have disagreements, but at least we can say if you're at the table, you get the benefit of the doubt. If you're at the table, you are trying to figure these things out. If we spend our time trying to convince folk that really just do not mean us any good, that do not want to listen to us, no matter how well we speak, no matter what the arguments we make, no matter what kind of um, 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 alliterations we do, I have a dream, I have a, no matter any of that, if we waste our time on that, we're wasting precious time and there are people still hurting and we need to be with them.
2: we're gonna go ahead and jump to questions yes
1: we have our first question say your name
4: Um, my name is Brianna Um, I do have a question for well first let me say this was a really insightful conversation and um, my question is for Robin Um, it's kind of twofold Um, you mentioned um, $25,000 checks how exactly is that funded is it taxpayer funded or is it people making donations and um, does your movement incorporate um, many of the work done by scholars like William Darity and um, groups like the ADOS movement? Thank you. Um, thank you for the question. Thank you for being here. Um, so our our reparations is funded by, um, initially it was recreational cannabis sales tax. So when we were passing our legislation, the state of Illinois was also passing recreational cannabis sales tax. So we were able to, without actually any debate, it was unanimous support on that, Um, Use that sales tax before it was earmarked for anything else. Now, there will be a lot of debate if we had to take it from parks or pensions or whatever else. So that's the first way that it's funded. And secondly, we've added real estate transfer taxes, but specifically graduated real estate transfer taxes. So homes in Evanston or properties rather that are sold above $1 million have a premium tax. And so that extra tax goes to, additional tax goes to reparations. We've also concluded through a legal memo um, from our corporation counsel, Nick Cummings, the brilliant, bold Nick Cummings, is that home rule taxes are the most viable and safest way to fund on a municipal level. Now there's there's not a state yet to do it. State might be different, but we can't use federal dollars. There's judicial barriers between doing this work at a federal level and so on. So that's how we fund it. Um, and then in terms of um, input, the work was done with so many collaborators, contributors, experts, um, yes to understanding the economic peace position of uh, Professor William Darity and closing the wealth gap as a form of repair, um, yes to being aware of the organizing and work uh, with ADOS in Evanston. We have a very diverse black community, and our period of harm is um, a period when the the African diaspora was in Evanston. So the eligibility question has not come up in that regard. I do think at a national level, there'll be more discussion around that, but we have a report that shows our injury area between 1919 and 1969, and the whole diaspora was there at that point. So reparations is given to anybody black in that 50 year period and all of their descendants, which I would qualify because my father, oh wait, my father is here everyone. (laughs) Daddy, will you stand up? No, don't stand up. You don't have to, Daddy. Okay.
3: I'm so grateful.
4: I'm so grateful. My father, he spends at least a week, sometimes um, two, with me and my children every summer. He's done this for years, and we're on the end of our um, 2023 visit, and he's here with me going back home to Chattanooga, where he retired to fish every day. So I love you, Daddy. Okay. We have another question. You know, uh, did you follow Randall Robinson's
7: format when you started your reparations?
4: So I, I, I wish I had. I'm becoming more educated. I um, called the question without much education. I got educated along the way before we passed. So I'm still learning from the elders, the ancestors in this case, and I hope to continue learning.
7: My name is Ernest Kenneth Davis. I was the first black dean at the University of Memphis 50 years ago. I'm an, octogeni- I'm an octogenarian now. I'm writing a book on African American history. I've been to seven universities in law school, so I have a right to speak.
1: Yes. <laughs> we have another question from Malti.
7: Yes, good evening. I wanted to um, just kind of backtrack because your opening statements were so profound and that Ken mentioned that, um, that uh, there was a sort of retelling of history going on, and he saw something good in that. And then uh, Andre mentioned about the legality versus the, yeah. the uh, morality, I guess, of it. And so I, uh, in revisiting those things, I, I kind of agree with Ken in that the big liar is <laughs> exposing you know, many of the lies that America has been telling and accepting right. And because he is rejecting some truths, is giving another um, uh, portion of the population to tell their truths. So I see the good in what you're saying, although I think the harm is greater. But also the Holocaust, within its context, was legal, but it didn't stop people from repairing the damage mm-hmm. to those people. Right. And again, as uh, Robin said, you know these kind of questions come up with respect to. African Americans talking about reparations. You want, you know, people want to curtail it and you know, call it all kinds of other things. But I really wanted to mention the fact that a couple of few months ago, I was here at the Civil Rights Museum at a Black Wealth Conference, and the company Wells Fargo had uh, sponsored this. And you know, those of us who study the history, we know Wells Fargo's history. But they were doing this beautiful philanthropic thing (laughs) at the Civil Rights Museum. And I appreciate, you know, building black wealth in that 10% population area. But in South Memphis and in North Memphis and the south side of Chicago where I'm from, that don't get to the people who need it. And so I am really um, impressed and grateful for the work that Robin has done because having done that work in Evanston, in that suburb of Chicago, where there's a smaller population where people saw that they could do something, it inspired us and gave us hope and gives us hope all over the country in these areas where interstates took black people's land and all of these things went on and, and, and in many ways are still going on. And so I really, really, really just want to shout you out. That's why I got up here. <laughs> because doing the work makes a difference. And before reparations was a popular or paid for or commissioned kind of subject, those like Cam Howard, who I believe you worked with in Chicago. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, regular people were doing this work and talking this, and you're feeling all uncomfortable because people were like, why are you talking about reparations? You, you, you want something you ain't worked for. Ooh, especially down south. They don't want to, you know, a lot of people who need reparations in, in, in communities like the, uh, South Memphis won't receive it because people in other parts of Memphis believe that they're not worthy of it, and it kind of, you know, pisses me off because you got <laughs> yours, but these people are never going to be repaired by black middle, uh, middle-class conferences. These people have to be repaired by the deep pockets of corporations like Wells Fargo, and you could call it 50,000, but we need reparations for those people who need it the most.
4: right, That's right. right. And so I know it wasn't a question, but I just have to um, let you know that I love you. I appreciate the love and um, the acknowledgement, and that, uh, yes, this movement was largely volunteer on on the backs and the sweat and the sacrifice of black folks, and in the last few years, um, the philanthropic community has begun funding the work. So that is progress, that we can actually do this work now with some resources. And then also, you're right, um, it ha- Evanston has inspired um, a national movement. And so in Evanston, it was, it w- we were alone in 2019. Today there are over 100 localities, apparently Memphis isn't one of them, but there's over 100 <laughs> localities that have advanced uh, reparations initiative, mm-hmm. including uh, the state of California, Um, New York is coming right behind it. So shout out to all those local leaders that are taking the question to your
6: uh, city councils and your state boards.
1: And we have our last question.
6: Um, Okay. Thank you. My name is Jasper St. Bernard. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Memphis in philosophy. Uh, I only bring that up to my work is on Ida B. Wells uh, and her anti-lynching campaign. Um, And so... I, I I dread asking this question because of the response to Dr. Johnson's passionate appeal at the, the last question, but I can't shake yeah. um, that those individuals who, who we all collectively sort of clapped at, who aren't willing uh, to get at the table, don't go anywhere after our applause. They're still very much a part yeah. of the story. And so getting to the question, um, One of the things that seems to obstruct repair, especially on a communal level, is myth. And so I just wanted to hear what you all thought about like myth-making, because that seems to be what keeps many people from, at least I suspect it keeps them from doing it, because um, to, to really join in repair in a meaningful way, destroys what many of us understand this country to be. Sure. Like it would be fundamentally different the day after we all joined forces to repair collectively. So then that sort of fractures and breaks apart who can be repaired. Cause it seems like some believe in order for another person to be repaired, I have to be broken, right? Like, and so, so what, how do we deal with the myths, the overarching myths that keep many from joining. Uh, and then they become sort of enemies to the repair. Is this question making sense? A lot here? of sense. OK, okay. all right, like thank you. you. Thank
3: you, Joel. Well, I'd like to, I'll would like i attempt to answer that. Well, well, first of all, people tend to think of, or I guess they're not even conscious of it, and that's why it's a myth, right? right. But they tend to, th- but, but when they do think about it, they think of myth as something eternal that was always in a certain condition with certain attributes, certain characteristics, but that's, that's never been true. Myths were always made, had to be propagandized, had to be <laughs> reconfigured, right. it was always changing, right? But it was very protean. it was always a, a changing. The one thing that didn't change was keeping the power relationship constant, right? So if, if there's inroads in this area in terms of progressive action, then we have to somehow acknowledge that but still maintain our privilege, right? So, but I also think of myth as, there's a bad form of myth which generally are these kind of meta-narratives of the nation and so on, which was always, which is, uh, I think, uh, would make the country stronger if we actually broke down some of those myths, to be honest. Not make us weaker, it would make us stronger, make us stronger right? right? And unify the country more. But I think there's another type of myth that which is maybe not what you're speaking about, but that is equally important, and that's that's the uh, myth of uh, subjugated knowledges, of knowledges that are oral histories passed down by individuals, generations, passed down on a kind of microscopic level, microgeographical level of knowledge. That is discounted as myth as fantasy, ahistorical. When it's nothing but, it's incredibly tangible, incredibly historical, right? So there's certain types of there. It's a way of of defining a kind of history which is which is mythic and and actually problematic because because it's never seen as in critical terms. It's never met. It's never. It also disallows any form of skepticism towards towards these meta-narratives. And I think that's the Mm -hmm. issue.
5: Real quick, thank me later. Uh, Richard Hughes, Myths That Americans Live By. That's the book, go get it. You'll thank me later for it. You can send me an email. And um, and it's an awesome book. And we started briefly, uh, I mean, at the beginning where you lifted up the religious and interfaith community A lot of the myths that we're talking about now is perpetrated by religious communities as well too. The faith um, um, tradition in this country has always been one that has been fundamentally anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-whatever else, And, and beginning with that, shaping laws and later on, theologies that supported that. Never just, I mean, speaking of the myths, you fought a Civil War in 1865. Civil War is over. By 1870, Tennessee elected a Confederate general and Confederates took over the state houses again by 1877, 1880. And then by 1900, it's all over. So I'm always amazed at the rhetoric that actually have United States of America venerate Confederate heroes in monuments and in statues. It's amazing to me. But I do understand it when I understand how religion is shaped and how religion create those myths.
4: I just wanna quickly, because I know we're um, out of time, respond to that as well on um, myths Uh, Some believe the the black reparations movement is about harming the white It's just not. It's about our justice. It is about our repair. Um, But I do want to, back to an earlier question that you shared, um, a report, there were two reports, the the, the case by uh, Coates, but also the cost of segregation report. Mm -hmm. It is done by the Metropolitan Planning Council, and it showed how... um, addressing our racial segregation in the city of Chicago was the was the reference would uplift the entire city of Chicago by increasing it maybe it was a two billion dollar increase to its GDP um, tens of thousands more people uh, a college degrees, million-dollar more household income in black families, safer neighborhoods, and so on. It showed how it is a public benefit to repair the black community. And I just want to share that as a tool that might be helpful if you're out looking to um, initiate the reparations conversation. Um, also, you could look at First Repair. We have a ton of resources there. The link to the documentary is currently um, on Amazon Prime. It's on PBS. It's on Apple TV, but we also have a resource guide, which includes how to be an ally, it has um, helpful tips on starting a reparations conversation, um, and we also have just, with the support of Harvard Kennedy School, put together a similar workshop for high school students, so if you do have any interest in um, supporting this work in younger audiences, please let us know and we'll send you that workshop and facilitator's guide.
2: Thank you. Great. Thank you all so much. Um Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation it's truly been an honor to to be up here with you and to moderate this panel and thanks to everyone in our in our audience both in person and online and those of course that that watch us later um you will be able to find a summary of our talk at zocalopublicsquare.org by tomorrow along with interviews with all of our esteemed panelists you can also subscribe to zocalo's newsletter podcast and social media this conversation as a reminder is part of zocalo's series How Should Societies Remember Their Sins? supported by the Mellon Foundation. Please join us again in October for the final conversation, How Does Confronting Our History Build a Better Future? Um, Andre, Ken, and Robin, thank you all so much. Please join me in thanking our panelists once again.